0: And if you're an old soul, I have been wanting to get this man on our podcast for a very long time, not just because we're both Russian Jews who have spent time in the Princeton area of New Jersey, but also because he's been the culture reporter at the New York Times for a while, and he keeps writing stuff where I'm like, oh, that'd be a really good podcast topic. I've probably stolen a lot of podcast topics from you writing about things, but then when I saw you wrote about Paul Newman's new memoir, and my first question was he died in 2008. How could Paul Newman have a new memoir? I was like, now we really have to get David Hitzkoff on the podcast. So David, uh, thank you. I Before we get to Paul Newman, I do want to start here. Does anyone on the planet love The Simpsons more than you?
1: <laughs> well, actually, I think the pleasure of it is that a lot of people love it as much as, as I do. And the fact that uh, there is Uh, I think a very rich audience for like Simpsons memes and memes from like a very specific era of the show's history. It wouldn't, it would not work as well as a shtick if, if like lots of people or enough people didn't kind of know the jokes and the punchlines already. If I was just talking to myself about it, uh, I I would have given up on that a long time ago if I didn't get like the serotonin (laughs) feedback response of other people also recognizing
0: Joke. Well, so I, I've followed you On Twitter for years And whenever there's like a big moment It gets checkmarked by Which Simpsons meme you choose To somehow perfectly encapsulate it Which the Simpsons has proven to done time and time again To predict things but you encapsulate the emotion So do you have like a Simpsons keyboard on your phone? Like how do you just have all these Simpsons memes all the time that you can comment on things with Twitter? I, I,
1: I mean, there. I assume people knew there is a really great website that I don't have anything to do with uh, called Frankiac, Frankiac.com. And the people who made it just, it's basically a searchable uh, database of of every episode. Essentially. I think, I think at least through like the first 20 seasons that you just type in the quote and it will give you uh, like, it will literally give you like that moment in the episode of, you know, it'll it'll give you like a a still frame of that with the quote, you can create gifs or gifs, whichever you prefer to call them. And you can go through every, you can just go through every episode. You can pick an episode and see it entirely in meme form. It's, it's, I I certainly would not uh, like, I, I would be, unable to do this without the use of frankiac so that's uh, it completely enabled me
0: wow i really just thought you made them all the time you're just like oh mine's this episode i will go to i <laughs> will go to disney plus pod in the episode it screenshot really, i put the,
1: the process, so sorry but no it, somebody else <laughs> did like 80 percent of the work uh, for me
0: uh i did see on twitter that you just saw the new black panther movie is that correct
1: yeah, that was er- earlier today.
0: I'm uh, sure you can't comment on I, it yet.
1: Yeah, no, no, like plot spoilers, but just emotionally, it was really uh, quite a ride. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not really saying much, even even there, but uh, <laughs> uh,
0: the superhero no, movie had, was a ride.
1: No, they have a lot to contend with, obviously, with you know Chadwick Boseman having you know passed away, and and you just going in, you you of course can't help but wonder, well, how much will the movie address this how much will be influenced by that and I, i i can't honestly think of a comparable experience in terms of a like a big budget uh you know franchise type movie really you know reckoning with the emotional heft of like the loss of its leading man in you know in in the course of making it it's 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 an unprecedented situation with maybe only one or two parallels and the way that they've taken it up I thought was really remarkable
0: I, guess, I was trying to think of a comparison while you were saying that I was, like, I was thinking maybe um, why can't I think of the name of Paul Walker may rest in peace Vin Diesel yeah
1: well certainly on you know in, in Fast and the Furious absolutely thank you sure. yeah uh, you know Carrie Fisher uh, you know dying as they were finishing up the, the mm. Star Wars uh, movies but this um, is
0: literally Black Panther
1: yeah yeah and, and you know So this is this is a a, you know a huge loss, a huge gap. Uh, You know, I certainly remember. You know, I mean, I I think understandably there was speculation. You know, after you know, uh, Bozeman died, like, would they recast the role? Would they try to use do some kind of uh, you know CG or or deep fake uh, solution? You know, because certainly the technology is is there. Um, And to their credit, uh, you know, they they the the, you know, the filmmakers did not take that route that they really made his death, uh, you know, central to the story and, and figured out what the story should be in light of that and and let the audience uh, mourn him instead of, you know, just kind of sweeping it under the rug or mentioning it in passing or, you know, having a, a lookalike from behind, you know, die on screen or something like they just you know, it's, it's real. like the energy of that is throughout the the film. And it's, it's kind of a, you know, like, you you know, you would ultimately like movies to be an emotional experience, of course, but like you can't deny the fact that there's like a ton of money bound up in these kinds of films and money, you know, and, and the the fear of not making money can, can have uh, obviously negative repercussions on these films. And, and, you know, I think they just made the sort of right, emotional uh choices here i mean other other moviegoers will will uh have their their own decision and they'll, they'll come to their own opinion about it but you know i felt like it really reckoned uh with that and you know even if if you were just another viewer like me who never knew him but had a relation to him just because of the roles that he played uh it lets you process that in in the movie
0: I'm glad you said all that. That makes me excited about it. I kind of wanted to ask because with all the Disney Plus shows, I've kind of started to hit my Marvel limit. People always joked about that could happen one day, and I was like, no, they've really got this whole overarching story. Now I've gotten to the point where I'm like, all right, it's a lot of CGI, magic, and wizard stuff. I think I'm starting to see my way out. But did this movie kind of give you faith that maybe we won't have Marvel fatigue? Or you were like, this is a one-off? Thing that happened that they were able to emotionally create for the viewers, but that
1: well, is unique it, to the it, situation. It's obviously a very you know specific set of sta- circumstances that they're uh, reckoning with, and and obviously sort of you know irre- irreproducible. Even even in a situation, let's say like uh, like The Dark Knight, where you know you had Heath Ledger passing away after the movie was was done, and you, you're, you're very aware that you're watching a performance by. Uh, you know, an actor who you know died recently. Uh, you know, th- this is even a different thing than than that. Um, you know, I, I, but I, I think I, what's you know, as separate from this, I mean, I think I think just to, to you know, speaking about the te- the the Marvel shows and and you know, this kind of Phase Four as they're branding it, uh, you know, it just seems like they're just kind of trying stuff out and seeing what works. And there's you know, so, so, there's something kind of. Uh, Like, it's fun to watch, you know, like, not everything has worked, but it's interesting to see them taking kind of interesting gambles on things like WandaVision, which I thought was, like, very different from the movies and uh, uh, really on, like, a totally different vibe and, like, you know, really gave you uh, a lot more time to just kind of live with a couple of the characters and also was kind of, like, an homage to, like, the medium of television in a TV series. That was, like, a very clever use of the characters and then more recently even something like she hulk which again you know i mean that that really kind of took advantage of the sort of episodic aspect of of the project and like these kind of bite-sized stories and a very kind of like um you know self-aware humor about what they were doing and you didn't feel like the stakes like that were like you know the entire universe is gonna blow up if if she hulk doesn't win every every week And, you know, it it could be much more sort of self-referential and she could even, you know, break the fourth wall in in ways that, like, other, you know, characters aren't allowed. So, like, right now they're just kind of, like, experimenting with stuff and seeing what audiences uh, respond to. And I imagine in time, I mean, certainly from what they've announced, you're getting the sense that they are starting to, like, marshal their resources again towards another couple of, like, really big crossover-type, movies in the vein of, like, Infinity War, Endgame. Uh, and, you know, that it'll be interesting to see if they can recapture uh, some of that. Obviously, some of the sort of biggest players of the franchise are, like, off the table at this point. And, you know, it remains to be seen. Like, you know, like I think there's still a lot of energy just towards Marvel and towards the overall uh, franchise of it. And, like, you know, will people turn out in those same... Numbers. I, th- I think. I think. Certainly, with, for for Black Panther, they're probably going to see you know a pretty sizable audience response. And then, you know, can they keep that momentum going?
0: How do you think I should pivot from the Marvel Cinematic Universe to Paul Newman's memoir?
1: <laughs> do you have any great ideas? Uh, Here's one.
0: I actually do have one. But if you have one, by all means.
1: No, no. I, I mean, if you, it sounds like you do. So let's hear. Sorry.
0: It. Yeah, I, I didn't when I said it, and then. I remembered a thought that I had when I was looking at pictures of him and realizing, oh, he kinda looks like Paul Rudd and then Googling it and seeing other people <laughs> on the internet think he kinda looks like Paul Rudd. Both they kind I don't know if you see it, you tell me. They both kinda look alike, got the piercing blue eyes, and they're both vaguely Jewish, but it never yeah, really think, gets discussed, but they are.
1: Yeah, that's that well that you know, I think that that's definitely a data point that they have in common and that, that uh you know that they they were both Jewish, at least you know with with Newman on on his dad's side, and that uh, you know I, I think uh, you, you know like even even to this day, if you ask people, like some people some people know about that about Newman, some people aren't sure. They're kind of like, "Oh, was he? I don't know. I didn't realize." <laughs> so it's, it's an interesting uh, and it's certainly something that he talks about at, at you know at some length in the memoir, which was very interesting to hear him really reckon with that and to talk about you know, facing a lot of anti-Semitism when when he grew up and not in a kind of wink-wink, nudge-nudge way at all. It was very blatant.
0: So the book is called The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man, and it was taken from interviews that he gave to a friend of his. Obviously, you can tell this information a lot better than I can, but essentially, they didn't know the interviews were still around since both those people died, and then his daughters basically found the transcripts in a closet in their Connecticut home. Is that mostly right? Yeah.
1: yeah that the I, I mean, when, when you say a friend, I mean, the person he was talking to was Stuart Stern, who was a great Hollywood uh, screenwriter and wrote, for example, like Rebel Without a Cause uh, and, and, you know, really knew Newman and his family quite well. And uh, in sort of like the mid to late 80s, they started, you know, basically like, Stern started sitting down with Newman uh, quite extensively to, to do these interviews, not only with him, but Newman asked him or encouraged him to basically talk to everybody else uh, in, in his life. So that, of course, included uh, his wife, Joanne Woodward, uh, and all of his, you know, uh, children, living children, but also like Paul Newman's first wife, who he had been married to before Joanne Woodward, who he basically left to have an affair with and then get married to Joanne Woodward and and to other uh, directors and filmmakers that Newman worked with regularly, other, uh, you know, Hollywood peers that, you know, he was either just friendly with or, or you know, collaborated with on different projects. So he was really saying, like, you know, you have the keys to the kingdom. And also, like, I want to hear opposing voices in this story. I, I don't want it to just be me telling what I think happened or giving my perspective on myself. I want to hear, uh, you know, people who might disagree with me or might sort of paint a different picture of what I think happened in, in some of these uh, moments. So at least in, in, in principle, it was like a very, you know, kind of radical thing for him to do because, you know, uh, Newman obviously was um, I mean, not a very press, friendly guy. Not, I don't mean that he was like a mean guy or, or, you know, uh, cruel to the press, but just didn't like being interviewed. Didn't like uh, the, all the sort of scrutiny that being a celebrity brought to him. And also was from a generation that needs to say is very different from like what celebrity is now, where people, a, a lot of, if you're famous, people sort of cultivate and desire that kind of attention all the time, and and not only from like sort of, you know, traditional mass media, but who like lived their whole lives on, on social media so that they can document everything and be observed 24-7. That was the polar opposite of sort of how, you know, Newman and other celebrities from his era lived their lives. And so the fact that like, at least in the time that he's working on this, that he seems to be wanting to really put himself out there. But then there's also the sort of mystery of you know, the interviews seem to have stopped, uh, you know, in 1991. Uh, and it's not totally clear, you know, why they stopped or, you know, uh, why the the both the actual, like, physical tapes of those interviews or the transcripts of them uh, went missing. You know, what did Newman intend for? Uh, a, a, a biography or memoir to come out in his own lifetime. Did he uh, want to wait until he was dead, and then somebody else could do it? Like the goal, original goal, obviously, was for Stern himself to compile this. But even he, uh, you know, I mean, he he only passed away a few years ago, and and from what I'm told by you know a couple of Newman's daughters, like they, he he seemed to be very sort of concerned, even at the end of his life, of like what. You know what became of those transcripts? Have you found the transcripts? Have you found the tapes? Uh, and and certainly within Stern's life, uh, you know they weren't they weren't located. They were still uh, missing. And then it was only sort of during like just before and during the pandemic that uh, uh, a family friend of the Newmans, who was sort of researching or looking into the possibility of making a documentary uh, just on on Joanne on Joanne Woodward, she first turned up a lot of the the interview transcripts that were done with the friends and the associates and the colleagues of Newman, and then subsequently found the actual interviews with Paul Newman. So suddenly they had all this material. Um, But, you know, Stern himself was not alive to finish the book, and they actually, you know, hired uh, an outside editor to kind of go through everything that was there and and essentially turn that into, you know, what they're calling a memoir.
0: I was trying to think of like a comparison maybe for people who haven't seen Paul Newman in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid or The Sting or Cool Hand Luke, and you can tell me if you think I'm wrong. I was kind of thinking George Clooney, but hear me out. Both like Oscar winners, like they are capable of doing a serious role, but they kind of, a lot of the time, seem to play this charming person and people think they have everything figured out, but maybe the main difference personally is that Paul Newman's life was a little sadder but like on screen i think they kind of seem to play the same person a lot of the time but they're capable of doing things a lot more serious is that fair or do you think i'm wrong
1: no well, i mean i think i think if you're if you're looking for a kind of as you know like a contemporary comparison point i think Clooney's... you, you know I, I obviously don't know none of us know the sort of ins and outs of his like private life but yeah in terms of the the like the on screen persona that they've cultivated in terms of just seeming like you know totally laid back just unflappable about everything and like you know just able to navigate their way through kind of any situation and usually with a little bit of uh you know good humor to it but also like finding themselves in like incredibly intense situations and 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 managing it in a way that like we wish we would if we ever found ourselves in anything analogous that's kind of the you know, you know, not not. There was obviously great variety to the characters that Newman played, but there was often and increasingly, as you know, as his career went on, that, that kind of like underpinning, uh, you know, to him. Uh, if people haven't seen, I mean, a movie that he made much later in his career, actually, The Verdict, uh, you know, which he was uh, directed by Sidney Lumet, and is probably the first movie that Newman actually thought he did a good job. Acting in, but is is kind of a classic Newman role or Newman character of you know this this kind of you know shabby lawyer who's incredibly like drunk all the time and then gets handed uh, a case that he genuinely cares about and in the process is able to sober himself up and really pursue it. Uh, you know that that is. Uh, You know, very much like, I think, a kind of archetypal uh, Paul Newman character.
0: Anytime I can get the word out there, I want to, that, like, people at the top are not totally happy, I like to. Not just because it makes me feel better, but it makes everyone feel better when they're like, man, I just want to be like Paul Newman. And a whole generation definitely did. That, like, when you read the memoirs, that maybe Paul Newman wasn't always as thrilled with how his life was going. And you even read it like Johnny Carson. Because when I think of like pure entertainment dominance, I think Johnny Carson, like 30 years, yeah. just no one ever touched him. But the whole time he was worried about who was going to take him on next. He was worried about <laughs> Dick Cavett and Joan Rivers. And it's like Paul Newman is like, well, who's touching Paul Newman? But like, he never felt that settled at the top either.
1: Sure, I mean, that's it's, it's absolutely true that in general, people, I think people sometimes find this sort of hard to, uh, accept or or realize, but that certainly with money and fame, you know, that does not in any way uh, alleviate or or uh, you know rid your life of the kinds of like everyday problems that we all face, and in many ways exacerbates uh, you know the kinds of of just sort of internal crises that we all deal with, and if you if you have and, and you know almost all of us in some way have. Uh, You know, uh, feelings of uh, inadequacy and and then to be placed on certainly what in in his day was, you know, the highest possible stage you could be on the maximum visibility that anybody could be given. And it's very hard. You know, just humans are not really kind of equipped to deal with that. None of us are. And, and, you know, with Newman, uh, I mean, part of what he was dealing with was just, you know, his own. I mean, just, uh, I, I guess, a, a lack of confidence in his own ability as an actor and even as he, you know, gets into, uh, you know, the actor's studio, which was like a very, like, exclusive and, and, and prestigious, uh, you know, uh, dramatic instruction program in the 1950s and 60s and working with people like Ilya Kazan. Like, still did not feel like he was a particularly talented actor. Had other people basically tell him to his face. Like, you're not <laughs> that great. You're not ready for a lot of what you're already getting. Um, you know, got, in a, in a very eerie way, like, caught a couple of early breaks because James Dean died and a couple of roles that might have gone to him or that he was being eyed for suddenly got, you know, passed on to him. Uh, and, you know, even... and. So just even his kind of like lack of self-worth as an actor, then, you know, add to that, uh, you know, his love affair with Joanne Woodward, who he truly, you know, deeply fell in love with, but at the cost of, you know, his first marriage uh, to a woman with whom he already had three children uh, and, you know, really feeling like he had to go through with this. He had to leave his first wife and had to be with Joanne. But knowing, you know, and basically carrying with him for the rest of his life, like, the devastation that he feels certain he caused to that marriage and to the children from that marriage. And, you you know, uh, other things, but I think also, uh, you know, very prominently, uh, the death of his only son, Scott, who, like, really lived in his dad's shadow and, uh, you know... Like wasn't quite able to get it together himself and never fully found like a career or a pursuit or a path for himself and was starting to try to become an actor and had great difficulty kind of establishing himself in a way that was separate from his dad and then died of uh, an accidental uh, overdose of of drugs and alcohol. Newman just never you know forgave himself for that, really like deeply internalized that. Uh, these are really heavy things for like anyone to contend with, and to see him really discuss these things at length uh, in what certainly appears to be great candor in a way that like if you if you were alive now and you were sitting face to face with him, it would probably feel awkward to even try to ask him about these things or to get him to open up about them unless you knew him really well. And here he is, at least on the page, just. Basically, you know, sharing these like innermost, uh, you know, thoughts and and, and reflections and articulating them quite well.
0: I'm glad you touched on how people doubted him and maybe doubted his acting skills. And I think there are a lot of people who are like effortlessly charming and they just don't know how to quantify that. This is I can't believe I mean, I guess I can compare these two people. They're both Oscar winners. But my fiance and I were watching 10 Things I Hate About You. (laughs) which was Heath Ledger's first American movie after coming here from Australia at 19. And basically, like, everyone in casting was like, well, that guy's it. Yeah, And, like, there were other people who wanted that role who were more famous than him. They were just like, this guy is so effortlessly charming. And eventually, like Paul Newman, he became somebody who won an Oscar and became an Oscar-calibre actor. But at the moment, it's just like, I think either people get jealous or uh, people don't see the potential they just see like okay he's charming but does he have the chops and it's like what does chops even mean i just want to like the guy that i'm spending two hours with you know
1: yeah well no there's no question that i mean particularly in in hollywood and in movie acting that you know just good looks and a certain screen presence that you know nobody can really kind of you know teach you or that you can't learn and that can get you quite far that can uh, whole careers Uh, can be built on that and like that may not be fair but like that's the way it is that's the kind of industry that it is and and at the same you know because of that I think maybe people don't realize that there is you know there certainly is at least a subset of actors who do care deeply about their craft and do want to work at and get better at acting whether it's acting on a stage in front of an audience or acting in front of a, a camera it was certainly quite valued in in like Newman's uh, day. That's why certainly something an institution like the Actors Studio was so uh, you know important and meaningful uh, to him. But yes, I think I, he definitely knew how he was perceived in like that first kind of phase or couple of phases of his career that he was essentially just a pretty boy and and like got you know he knew that like that's probably the reason why he was getting a lot of the work that he was getting as I mentioned before, like this thing of, you know, just James Dean dying suddenly. And he's essentially kind of interchangeable or just being plugged in for these roles that would have gone to Dean who was viewed as like a genuinely good actor and people kind of looking at Newman and telling him to his face, like, you're not there yet. Like you're, you know, you, you look good on screen, but you're not as good of an actor as he was, or as these other people who you're in, you know, whose peer group you're in. And he's, He's working on that. He's trying to get better. He's trying to, you know, feel confident in his performances, give performances that he can feel proud of, and still, even even in movies that we regard as as classics, as some, something as as early as like *Cat on a Hot Tin Roof*, it, you know, he like, it, you know, he, there's so much like self uh, loathing and inadequacy that he's, you know, coping with on on the film uh, like that, and like. You know, maybe it's hard to you know be sympathetic to somebody like that, given all the other kind of like, you know, a uh, privilege that, that that he enjoys. But again, I think it, the, the way that it's laid out in the book, it's so, uh, you know, open. That like you, you, and 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 you, even before you get to that part of the story, just to learn about his upbringing and and his childhood, and that you know that you really get to know him as a person by the time you reach some of these moments, and and uh, you know, you've really gotten in his head and in, in his life.
0: Have you seen that clip? I'm sure you have, of when Louis C.K. is on Jimmy Fallon's show. and They're talking about when Jimmy Fallon applied to be a writer on the Dana Carvey show and Louis no, C.K. is I, hiring. I okay. <laughs> well, hopefully I get it all right. But basically, Louis C.K. was like picking writers to hire for the Dana Carvey show and Louis C.K. was on that on ABC. And okay. Jimmy Fallon sent in an audition and he was like, this really good looking guy in his young 20s and he's like playing guitar and he's like shaking his butt around and Louis C.K. tells Jimmy Fallon the story 30 years later. He was like, there was no way I was going to hire you. You were way too good looking. <laughs> Everyone around the office is going to have a crush on you. There was just no way. And Jimmy's like, what? How could you do that to me? And it's like, sometimes people really don't like the good looking people. They get really mad at them.
1: Yeah. Oh, I think, you know, in that, in that era, I mean, you know, we maybe I'm like sort of over glamorizing, over romanticizing, but like, I don't know. I think leading men and women just looked better in that in that day. Maybe it was the way they were photographed or maybe the, the medium itself still had like an air of like innocence, even though it, it like clearly was awful and probably like, worse in ways that we can't even like comprehend than Hollywood is now. But just the people that it was like, you know, elevating, they looked so kind of, I don't know, you know, airbrushed in a way without being airbrushed. Or maybe it was just the fact that everything was shot in black and white and that gave things just like a certain visual uh, contrast. But like, or maybe because the era itself is like so distant. Like I I didn't live through it at all. And so it seems like to watch these movies or even to read about people living in that time and seeing documents and photos from that time, it, it seems vaguely dreamlike. You know, like obviously it happened, but because you have no personal historical connection to it, there's something about it that almost doesn't feel real. And so like the people that, you know, were already fairly elevated in that day, they seem even that much more sort of out out of reach.
0: Well, somebody else who was seen as charming at first and funny and then eventually became a heavyweight contender is someone you wrote a book about four years ago, Robin, a very comprehensive biography about Robin Williams, who's definitely my favorite actor ever. And I think he's a lot of people's. What were some of your favorite stories that you learned about him that you were like, wow, that's so cool. I wish I had known that forever.
1: Well, you know, I, I mean, this, this main, this isn't, this won't answer your question at first, but like, you know, because I, I I wouldn't say this was like a cool story, but you know, he was somebody who else who also constantly grappled with, uh, you know, feelings of inadequacy, and even once you know he achieved, you know, incredible accomplishments, was was co- was still looking over his shoulder and and being like, okay, who's who's coming up behind me? Who's on my heels? Who's gonna displace me at the top? Because nobody stays on top forever, and it's only a matter of time, you know, before that happens to me. And you can see those fears, in like, encoded, but barely. Like, not even, like, like, sublimated in his work. But, like, on the surface level, like, you know, doing stand-up routines and Saturday Night Live sketches where he's, like, imagining himself as an old man of 60 and, like, already... Kind of thinking about like what you know, what is my life going to be like, and what kind of a career am I going to have left when my audience, uh, you know, abandons me? They, they're just expect like he's just expecting that to happen. It just like he's seen enough Hollywood history that he knows that like that's what, what happens to people, and he's like, well, I mean,
0: he's on more committee with Jonathan Winters, and he's like, this is my idol, and I'm seeing him at the end of his career now. That could be me one day going back to a sitcom,
1: or just that like you know. Or, or like seeing and Morgan Mindy only lasted four years and it was like a top 10 sitcom in its very first season. And even by its second season, you know, they were already trying to like tinker with it and, you know, make creative changes that hurt the show quite badly. You know, it really dropped off audience wise from season one to two, from season two to three. Uh, and so like even in, in real time, he's basically seeing like nothing lasts. Nothing is guaranteed and nobody stays at the top forever.
0: It was heartbreaking. We were watching his first interview on Johnny Carson, where he obviously became a staple yeah. and Johnny loved him. Yeah. And he comes out and now it's sad to watch because he's like, Am I doing well? Are you guys gonna like me? Is it okay? Am I really funny? Like he's scared about it. Then he yeah. like goes into the audience, he's hilarious, there's a million impressions and stuff. He's pretending to be flipper, trying to eat the microphone, like
1: <laughs> eh, 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 eh. he's trying to eat the
0: microphone. <laughs> And then he starts telling something serious in like the sixteenth minute, and then he's like, "Oh, I stopped telling jokes," and the room gets real silent. And it's yeah. like, I think he kind of had that like Chris Farley problem where it's like, I don't know if they're laughing at me or with me, but I better keep it going just in case.
1: Yeah, I think I think that was something that people could definitely sense about him that all that kind of uh, you know riffing and and, and kind of character work, particularly in his kind of you know, public appearances or things outside the context of, like, his film and TV work, that there was a certain neediness that that was coming through from from him in that. That, like, you know, if he were to ever kind of drop the shtick and, you know, share his true self in some way, there was always that fear on his own part that he would be rejected. You know, a, a lot of people that were very central to his life, people like, uh, you know, Pam Dauber, who is his co-star on Mork and Mindy, or even Valerie Velarde, who is his first wife, they tell stories about meeting Robin for the first time. And, like, face-to-face, in person, he's, like, putting on an accent or playing a character to them in, like, their earliest introduction. Because, again, it's like that is a safer way for him to, to sort of extend himself to somebody. If he just puts himself out there as himself there's that risk that you could reject him and that would wound him terribly. So it's easier for him to just kind of hide behind the persona.
0: Which movie was kind of like his arriving point of like, okay, he's officially a star. He's not just for for Robin. Yeah.
1: I mean, it would, it would probably have to be good morning Vietnam. I mean, Mm. in terms of a movie that was both, you know, critically successful, you know, and and a big commercial hit, you know. I mean, he had other movies that were well reviewed or or people thought they saw a potential in them, like uh, you know, The World According to Garp or um, Moscow on the Hudson. But those those were not like big uh, you know box office hits. Good Morning Vietnam was really the first one where like everything uh, you know came together. For him.
0: When I was in at Hillsborough Middle School, hmm. ten minutes from Princeton, where you went to school, uh, I did the morning announcements. And the day before I started, my dad made the mistake of showing me "Good Morning uh, Vietnam," yeah. and then the next day I came in at seven in the morning. and was like "Good Morning HMS <laughs> Hillsborough Middle School," and like teachers used to shut me off. They hated me so much <laughs> for trying to be Robin. That's the thing about Robin; like, you can't really duplicate him. I, do you, have you heard this? I think it's a story of David Letterman told of like being at the comedy store in the '70s. And Robin yeah. going up for the first time and him being like, oh, we're all screwed because no one yes. could be him.
1: Yes. That if, this, basically, that if this is what stand-up comedy is going to be from now on, that like guys like Letterman are done because they can't. there's no way they can do what he's doing. Yes.
0: I was trying to think, because I know you just recently interviewed James Corden and it eventually had to become about the restaurant incident, even though you were trying to talk about an Amazon Prime show. But I was trying to think, while everyone's focusing on Corden, and whether or not he's actually nice or not. Like how it would have went with Letterman in the modern era if he had started now. Because I, I remember I met a, a someone who was a page at NBC when he was there in the '80s, and said that he used to throw tennis balls at them all the time.
1: Mm-hmm. And it was
0: like if that ever got out, he would have been done. Like it's interesting how either like David was supposed to be not that nice of a person, so it was okay, or we just find out more now, or maybe people just really don't like James Corden.
1: It, it's it's really complex, you know I mean there there it, you know there's there are certainly the aspects of like you know it was a different era. I mean, you can say that about like sort of every era of entertainment that people were just people just got away with more, you know or that like that that there was a certain license that they were given in in, in a way that isn't always okay or that they probably shouldn't have at the time. I and mean, in some ways we just are better equipped. We have more kind of language now to like express when things are wrong and we understand when things are are wrong or that they shouldn't be. And I, I, you know, it's just taken also, I think a really long time and it's, it's by no means a finished process of like, I think kind of being able to chip away at these power structures and for people, for individuals to feel, you know, empowered enough to be able to say when they think somebody of, of, you know, at, at some kind of elevated level is doing something wrong i think there's still there's still you know understandably i think fear at that kind of like you know at at the lower echelons that like you're the one that's going to get you know face repercussions if you call out that kind of behavior and obviously that we still see that happening of like people who are whistleblowers getting punished uh for that so obviously this isn't like solved by any stretch but gradually slowly i think people have felt a little more enabled or more empowered to you know call that out when it does happen
0: yeah it feels like with with Corden, and i felt this way with ellen too that like there were rumors for a long time about what it was like to work with them and then when something finally came out people were like pouncing on it
1: yeah it's it's very i mean i you know without speaking to any of these particular situations Specific, just, right. in, in in general you know like uh you know even even when there are kind of you know, rumblings or rumors about people or a perception about people. It can, it can, it can be very difficult to kind of, you know, un, unravel it. Even if there's, even if, even if those, you know, perceptions are based in truth, because you know, it, it, it I mean, I had nothing to do with like these kinds of, of pieces, but if you look at the the reporting that like Jody Cantor and Megan Chewy did around Harvey Weinstein and like getting those first couple of people to go on the record when nobody else. Uh, you know, has, has taken that step yet is very, very difficult. You, those people are always going to feel like I'm the one putting my neck out and, and I'm risking everything here. Uh, so, yeah, that, that makes it, you know, in, in, in these situations where there's like, you know, uh, you know when, when it, it, it's sort of labeled, you know, a, a worst kept secret, but nobody actually will say it specifically or go on record. It, it can become, uh, you know, very, like very, you know, just very difficult, very, a very tricky and treacherous situation to, to unpack those things.
0: And on the topic of late night, you also interviewed Lauren Michaels right before SNL came back. Obviously, a lot of turnover there, which is not the first time that's happened there. But we are in a different era of television and, and YouTube in this medium. And one thing I've been trying to think about, you know, as Kyle Mooney kind of exits And obviously, Tim Robinson's exploded with his own sketch show. Do you think SNL needs to get weirder or less weird? Because it feels like Kyle Mooney was like a huge YouTube star. He never really got to cook like you expected him to. Robinson left and made his own sketch show that basically owns Twitter now. Every meme is him in a hot dog (laughs) costume. So do you think they should get a little weirder, let the kooky people cook a little bit, or try to get more mainstream and just do more political and impressions?
1: You know, I I would be I I think I would really be remiss to try to tell Saturday Night Live <laughs> That's what fair. to do ever. <laughs> you know, because it, it, it's it, it, it's all kind of determined by by the zeitgeist essentially what what people embrace, what they find funny. There's there's any number of stories there about things that you know killed at a table read or in dress rehearsal, and then they went on the air and they just died in front of an audience and they don't, there's no science to it. And likewise things that like they put out uh, as part of the show that like, you know, maybe we're sort of funny at the time. And then you, they, they, they and then you go back and rewatch it and it really lands with you later. And, and it, it kind of, you know, grows in esteem over time. And then there are the things that just work right out of the gate and immediately become sort of part of the lexicon of the show. And, and like, you know over like a 50 year span like of course you know you're gonna have like like even if you only had like one or two hit sketches in a year and i think their success rate is certainly higher than that but even if that's all you had like that like one or two sketches a year over 50 years you're gonna have a pretty deep uh you know catalog by that time so like uh, you know I, I, i i think i think there's you know, in in some ways, like their 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 mandate is 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 much broader than like any other kind of sketch show right now, because all these other shows essentially are very personality driven. Even something like I think you should leave. I mean, that's obviously all you know coming from Tim Robinson or the, the version of himself that he puts forth. But you know, that still is kind of like you know following in a model of. You know, Chappelle show or, or or Inside Amy Schumer those things, which are very specific to the host and whatever their sensibility is, or what feels like their sensibility. And in some ways, I think the, the the sort of stakes are higher for any one of those shows, or at least the the it's much harder to get a good hit rate out of a show like that because again, it's all filtered through who the host and the the star of it is. With SNL, they have You know, there's a a much like because it can reinvent itself every couple of years, and because the rosters are always changing. And so there's nothing that's, you know, except for that they, you know, they have these kind of very broad, generic structures of like a sketch. They have weekend update. They have weekend update desk segments. They have a monologue. But, you know, now that they're doing, it seems like they're doing a lot more film stuff now, which I think has actually been good for them and, and has expanded their palette a bit. But beyond that, like they don't, you know, other than just write new sketches every week and try to respond in some form or another to like whatever you think is going on in the world. That's basically it. That is their whole mandate. And like within that, I think, you know, they like they've proven like pretty resilient.
0: Are you a football guy?
1: Not at all. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I'll try I to know, make I this. know what the teams are. Yeah, it's okay. It.
0: I I, you I know the promise. Giants are having
1: a, a surprisingly good season. <laughs> they are. Yeah. I will lasso
0: <laughs> this back to what we're talking about. I promise. I'm just yeah. making an analogy because there aren't a lot of people like Lord Michaels, and you were just you were talking to him last month. Yeah. So recording this the Thursday after Monday Night Football when the Patriots lost, but Bill Belichick, who I think is like Lord Michaels, where it's like he has unprecedented success in charge of something. People were kind of joking and I'll shout out the Levitart podcast because they were talking about this, but they were joking that Bill Belichick, who got to bench his first round pick to play Bailey Zappi from Western Kentucky that no one had ever heard of, and that's actually more exciting for him. People think that's a hard decision, but it's exciting because he likes a little project. And I was wondering, when you were talking to Lauren, like a lot of people are speculating like, oh, he has a lot of holes to fill. He has a lot of turnover to take care of. He must maybe be nervous, and it's actually like, no, this is exciting for Lauren. He has a lot of work to do, and this is what makes him going, and this is cool and fun for him.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I will say I think if he is if he is or does feel any pressure, he certainly is, like, shrewd enough at this point, you know, and at this phase of his career to not let that show in an interview or not to express that, you know? But by the same token, I think he has gone through this process quite a bit. I mean, it has been a while since SNL overhauled itself to quite this degree or lost this many veteran cast members in a single sort of off season period, that is still going to be a big challenge, but they've reinvented themselves so many times at this point, this isn't even like the fourth or the fifth time <laughs> that it's has you know, overhauled itself this way. And, and like, so I, I it just like, if, if people are kind of looking for the season where they don't, pull it off or they don't just, you know, reconfigure themselves in some way. That's always happening. You know, it it like it's, it's been more in, in in over the last 20 to 25 years, it's been more gradual. They change out maybe two to four people every year. And this is a year where it just, the the, the number of changes have been more palpable, but it's always changing in some form or another. So I, I don't know, I guess, I, I, my sense is he doesn't really sweat it that much. I, I think, I think they did lose a couple people this year who really were just wildly talented, who, who, you know, just could do so many different kinds of things for them, and that those are those are tough losses, and I'm sure they miss those people. But uh, the show proves every season that it that it can persevere and move forward.
0: Since we are the Old Soul Podcast, I do legally have to ask you this question sure um are you wearing a harry nilsson shirt
1: i am i am
0: all right (laughs) i I I didn't
1: wear this occasion but yeah i am (laughs) well
0: you've hit our niche uh for everybody if you don't know that is that's the guy who sings uh everybody's talking at me they played in i don't hear what they're saying (laughs) is is that one of your guys like who are your guys (laughs) Who, who are your and girls too who are your people
1: no 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 i mean it's for me it's just like an ever evolving uh kind of pantheon uh for me you know i like people that like i i you know i like I, for a while i was going through I, I think i still am in like a big uh like gene clark phase right now like i just you know he was in the birds and then uh had like a kind of like peripatetic uh solo career like just he had a lot of stage fright and and so it was like doing more kind of like studio stuff and like, you know, a lot of drug abuse, unfortunately, and that like, uh, you know, limited his uh, productivity among other problems that contributed to, but the stuff that he did put out is extraordinary. And, and I kind of, like it definitely was not celebrated in its day. And I think, you know, has, has, has grown, uh, in esteem and like you know getting introduced to albums like uh, uh, his one solo album called No Other which like became one of my all-time favorite albums and I only maybe discovered it like I don't know two years ago so like getting introduced to stuff like that it, like just when you find it whatever it may be whether it's an album or a movie a book whatever it is but something that like has existed for a while and you just get introduced to it and it becomes so meaningful to you so fast I mean I love those kinds of experiences like that thing was just kind of waiting there to be found and anybody else could come across it and and find it like just as as rich and satisfying
0: how dare you bring up an artist that i do not know a lot about no, that's
1: okay <laughs> supposed
0: to be very knowledgeable about these eras i do know the birds <laughs> the elite it. singer i know roger mcguinn i do not know gene right. clark though. so i will check that out thank you i'm glad you come yeah, on I, here and teach you know, me something
1: highest highest possible uh uh recommendations regards
0: Is there a a movie from back then, sixties, seventies, maybe eighties, fifties that you think you can copy and paste right now, and it would still do really, really well, and it like it has the right pace, people would still love it.
1: I'd have to think about that, but like, yeah, I mean, I, I when I think about my favorite movies from that era, I don't know if they if they would or they'd have to be, you know, made contemporary in some way in terms of like. Production value or or pacing, but but part of why I love those kinds of films is because like they don't get made like that anymore, and they wouldn't get made in the same way, or they people just wouldn't they wouldn't take a chance on that story, or they wouldn't think that this kind of story could sustain a feature film, or maybe they would you know they would turn it into like an eight episode Hulu miniseries, and by episode three you'd just be so. Bored of it that you wouldn't make it to the payoff, but it works really great as a two hour film.
0: What are your favorite movies from that era?
1: Well, I mean, I was literally like the, the movie I was kind of thinking about as I was talking about, this was uh, sorcerer, which is uh, the William Friedkin movie, which is, uh it, you know, it, it, it's, it's about a group of like very disparate and desolate guys who all find themselves in this like weird, South American country they're all on the run from different situations wherever they came from they're like one guy participated in a failed assassination attempt one guys on the run from the mob they cannot live or be anywhere else because if they turn up they're going to get killed so they all end up in this weird South American country they're living like you know dollar to dollar basically and then uh there's this you know the, all, the whole economy of this little country is sustained by uh, oil rigs and there's a big oil rig fire and they need people to basically deliver um, uh, uh, like, um, what are they, like the, the active ingredient in, in TNT to put out the fire. So these guys have to drive trucks of like very fragile TNT through the South American jungle to get to the site of the fire to help put it out. And like, you know, just, it's all of these like, just grueling experiences that they endure in the effort. And naturally, like almost all of them are killed in, in the process in different ways, trying to get to, but it just like the the, like the, 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 the extreme, extreme situations that they find themselves in and how they persevere and, and just <laughs> abuse themselves. Just ma- like the, the sheer masochism of what they are putting themselves through for the sake of staying alive, like there's something, there's something very human about what they're going through. In spite of the fact that their circumstances could not be more extreme or absurd or uh, unrealistic in a lot of ways.
0: That's so funny you say that. Cause my submission is basically a very similar plot, which is butch Casting and the Sundance kid. But I just thought that because, and they go to South America, but it's like really yeah. quick, fast paced, good screenplay, very good looking leads. Also Catherine Ross, like just three, people you right. would love to hang out with for two hours or an hour and a half. So that's very interesting that we were in the same place. Okay. Yeah. I don't and know if get... I
1: would call it a sorcerer or a kind of hangout film. I don't know it doesn't sound do
0: that. like it. No, that's true. That's yeah. not, you said masochism. So probably uh, no. Uh, uh,
1: Roy Scheider is the main guy. Oh, okay. I mean, Joss. Nobody, nobody could carry, nobody was sort of better equipped to kind of carry that, like just weariness and, and, and shock in, in his face. And like the, a lot of like great shots, especially near the end of the film where it's like, him alone driving his rig he's clearly been awake or his character's been awake like for hours on end he's losing his mind and like he can just convey all of that with his face he didn't have to kind of do the dustin hoffman thing of i'm going to stay up for two days straight so i look like a guy <laughs> who stayed up for two days straight i'm just gonna act it and you're gonna buy it because i'm roy scheider
0: he didn't have to say we gonna need a bigger boat. She just looked, and dropped his jaw, He dropped his jaw, and you would have known exactly what he needed and it's a bigger boat.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I it's I love I love Jaws, but like this if like if I if there could only be one Roy Scheider movie left on Earth, I mean, I guess it would be a toss up between that and all that jazz. But like, hmm. the, 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 yeah, I, he's such an under you know yes. sort of under underappreciated, even for a guy who was as, as successful as he was, like a, a guy who like needs to be kind of like rekindled and 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 recelebrated.
0: hopefully they find a giant transcript
1: yeah <laughs>
0: from a memoir in a closet yeah.
1: wouldn't that be great if he did the same thing <laughs> <laughs> bring it back oh, um,
0: i want to let you get to go hang out with your son who's getting Thank home from you. school Thank um you. anything you want to plug coming up this is probably going to come out on monday anything Articles people know about.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe who knows what will have happened between true. Now? This is a Thursday, <laughs> but nothing, nothing that I'm, nothing I'm anticipating anyway. <laughs>
0: can, can you leave us with one Simpsons quote that comes to your head that you think is fun?
1: Well, I, you know, I was just going back and forth on the scene where, um, you know, uh, Bart and Lisa are, it's, it's in the episode, uh, you know, in the the, the mountains of madness the 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 uh the snow avalanche episode where Burns and Homer are stranded in the cottage that's been snowed in and the family's looking for them, and Bart and Lisa are in the like park ranger station trying to find ways to entertain themselves. And Bart walks up to the sort of Smokey the Bear animatronic and it says, "Only who?" Can prevent forest fires, and there are two buttons: one that says "you" and one that says "me." And he presses the one that says "you." Oppressed you, indicating me, and that is incorrect. The correct answer is. You know. <laughs> 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 that to me is that's that's just what life is. It's just you know, there's no no like no correct answers ever.